Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Coach Growth Podcast. I am your host, Coach Andrew McGacky. This episode is the second part of my talk with Coach Ryan Banta, where we get into more of the nuts and bolts of what he does and how he does it, as well as a myriad of other topics from distance running to his book. So please enjoy. All right, we're back with Coach Ryan Banta for part two of uh, continuation of our last talk, uh, which was really great. If you haven't listened to it, go back and please do. Uh, we discussed your background, how you got into coaching, how you grew and developed into a co- you know into the kind of coach that you are, and how you do why you do what you do. Uh, we talked a little bit about the critical mass system, your, you know, how you do kind of an individual periodization for your athletes and how it's not like a blanket approach, that kind of thing. Workouts are tailored. The program is tailored to fit your athletes because every athlete is different. Uh, And so I want, you know, let's start, let's dive into that because individual periodization is something that has just really taken over my thinking during this last year. You know, like I said in the last episode, I just, I discovered Bonderchuk a couple months ago and that has just completely blown my mind with, you know, the way that programs can be written and how there's not this blanket approach and how every athlete is, you know, different things like that. So I guess, you know, before we get into the specifics, like how did, when, how did you come into that, like that thinking? Well, I think a lot of it comes down to, um, mentorship with a bunch of different coaches and my own anecdotal experience. And then you also have a little bit of that idea of, you know, um, making mistakes and learning from them, experimentation. But the biggest thing was probably my tutelage with Dan Path, you know, because he's really kind of the godfather of the all depends kind of system. However, he has a system that he oftentimes runs with his athletes as well. If you spend a lot of time with him, um, you could argue that he is a much more short to long guy uh, than he is a long to short or a, you know, a critical mass or a concurrent system guy. But then also just kind of the research through the book and seeing all of these different systems and realizing, okay, they do that. Why do they do that? What are the results from that? What do the athletes look like in that system? How are they successful or not successful? And so then for me, it was like, okay. So, you know, my first year coaching, we were really, really good in the sprints. And there had to have been something good going on there, plus having talented athletes. But then I've had more success with a different system, which is more of the critical mass system, which we can talk about. And then we've, but then I found kids that weren't doing well in that system, but I knew that they had talent. Along comes Chris Corfist and Tony Holler. And it's like, oh, okay. So I'm not going to use that with all of my kids, but how can I take kind of those three different experiences, my first year, learning from Burris, learning from Dan Path, and then learning from Corfist, how can I take those three systems and go, okay, what can I do in my program? that allows me to honor kind of these three different kind of groups or two different groups of athletes that are purely sprinters and then apply it in a way that makes sense for them and still allows them to be multi-event athletes as well so that they're not just, because it's high school track and field, right? So, you know, there's no real particular event 
that becomes a specialty until you've learned who the athlete really is. And you're kind of, again, experimenting and playing around with those variables to figure out the best combination. But all the while, you know, you've got to honor the training to allow them to be successful for you and them to make those choices. So that's kind of how that developed. Most, you know, you, you hit it on the head there, especially, you know, and there's obviously outliers where you're, you know, a huge school and you can have that hundred meter specialist and, you know, just a high jumper and things like that. But for, you know, most, especially in where I'm from, you you know, my best discus thrower last year was also on my four by four. And, you know, um, that, you know, I've had distance runners that do field events, you know, just cause like the, you know, the team's not big enough and you can't try to force those specializations because you need a well-rounded team. And so you got to be able to fit your program where those kids can, you know, hit all the things they need to hit while working on multiple events because Correct. very few teams have a, you know, this isn't college where you have the, your hurdle group, you have your short sprints, your mid distance, you know, you have kids that get, are all over the place because it just be out of, you know, requirement to have a well-rounded successful team. Right. Um, and we, when every year we have an athlete who kind of fits this multi-event role, we actually honor that. So again, how does your, how does your culture mimic what you want to see out of your results, right? So every year we give a trophy out and one of the trophies is what we call the Melissa Gilman Spirit Award, which is basically the best citizen on the team. And then we have an award that we give out is, which is the best multi-eventer award, you know? So we want to encourage you know, athletes to do more than one thing. And we honor that. And that, that trophy is at the level of all of the other event groups, you know, with the same trophy and the same placard and, and all that kind of stuff. And so every year we have a kid who kind of fits that. And uh, unfortunately, because of COVID, um, we didn't really get to see that play out the way we wanted to specifically. But we had a young lady last year when she was a junior her name's Kennedy Moore, and she's going to be running for UMSL. They just started a new track and field program over there at University of Missouri-St. Louis. And she was a sectional qualifier in the long jump on our four-by-one that was all state, on our four-by-four that qualified for state, on our four-by-eight, you know, and has run on our four-by-two and has been all state on that and has been all state on a four-by-four as well. So she's been all state in three of the four relays and a contributor on the four-by-eight and a sectional qualifier in a long jump. And then on top of that, she was a member of our cross-country team and our third or fourth best runner on our team um, pretty much the entire season uh, last year and was an individual sectional qualifier as well, her, junior, her sophomore season. And then um, in addition to that, we had, uh, you know, her be a, one of the best basketball players in our school and she actually hit the game-winning shot for the third-place game in the state championship when she was a junior. So, like, if you don't honor the kid and, and create training space for the kid to be good at a bunch of different things, then you might not be doing your best to honor. And that kid is like the glue that sticks the whole team together because then there's no excuses. It's like, well, she can do it. All of you can do it, and none of you own an event. You know, you're just doing what you can to help the team out. Now, obviously, she ended up being – her junior year, she was our second best long jumper. We had a girl that finished second in the state in the long jump as well. But, you know, by Kennedy being able to make major inroads in that event really helped us out. But if I just kept her as a sprinter and never allowed for her training to facilitate the jumps, then we wouldn't have gotten as much out of her as we could have. 
Now, when you're facilitating the workouts for these multi-athletes, what, I guess, I guess the first question would be like, what does your staff look like? And like, how do you as head coach oversee all that in between position groups? So as a staff, I have a coach that is very much my jumps coach. So she covers all the jumps except for pole vault. So she covers high jump, long jump, triple jump. Then I cover, and this is new because we switched it up a little bit. I cover the, all the sprints and the hurdles. So every relay, every sprint. But I also write the workouts for our distance team. Now, that's not something I will continue to do, but we can get into it. I have a process that my, my assistant coaches go through to take over training. I don't just hand them the keys to the ship because we have a direction we want to go, and our ship's like a battleship, so we've set up things – a while ago so when you're trying to turn that battleship it doesn't turn like a sea do you know it takes a while to make some directional changes and we got to make sure that's where we want to go and not make long-term bad decisions but anyway I have an assistant distance coach as well who's just supposed to take care of the distance workouts and things like that but we'll talk about how that develops um, I have a coach that covers all the throws and then we have an assistant coach who covers pole vault that we split between the boys and the girls um, so that's kind of how we, we handle that whole situation in our, in our program. And the boys coaches have the same thing. Um, so we have split staff. So there's actually, you know, nine coaches between the boys and the girls program split up, which is a pretty good deal. But sometimes, to be honest, probably a wasted effort, too, because we have two coaches doing the jumps, two coaches doing distance, two coaches doing sprints, you know, and it probably could be more efficient. But at the same time, if you unify the program, that's a lot more work and a lot more coordination between track meets and things like that. So that's how I have my staff divided up. And that's a lot of different people doing a lot of different things. One of the things we do is we will have a staff huddle every week where we get together and we decide what athlete is going where that are those multi-event athletes like I just talked about with Kennedy. A lot of coordination for a kid like Kennedy, and Kennedy's not the only one because we test all the kids. So if the kid is the best thrower and she's only five foot five, you know, and skin and bones, but she can throw it, she's still going to throw. Up until our most recent discus record holder that we've talked about, um, most of my throwers in the discus have been lean people. My best javelin throwers, lean. And some of my best shot putters have also been on all state relays, which like you said, I mean, that's, that can make the difference between a relay making it or not and, and all that kind of stuff. So we have our weekly meeting, which is usually on a Tuesday because that's when our workouts are the quickest. And oftentimes when we have our kids in the weight room so that we can kind of monitor them and have our conversation as well. And we lay out a schedule for the following week and the competitions we want to see kids in that maybe they haven't done yet and how we're going to share them. So it could be that we share them day to day or we'll split them halfway through a practice, which is something that we'll do too. So for example, if it is a Tuesday workout and we're doing repeat 200 short recovery, that gets done really quick. It's, it doesn't feel good, but it gets done real quick. And then we usually go in the weight room on that day because we have time to actually use the weight room. So then what we do is if it's throws, the kid will maybe go to the throws coach before we enter into the weight room 
and do their throwing workout. And then we come into the weight room, we'll have our team huddle and all that kind of stuff. So you have to figure out where it fits best in your program. And when you set up your schedule, it needs to be consistent so that you can share these kids. And then we theme up our days to mimic the themes within all the training groups. So that way an athlete never gets blown up by switching between either a technical event or a different running event. Yeah, that, so we, I'm the head boys coach and I get one assistant that changes, that changed this year and will change the next few years going forward because a, a child came out as a freshman who has down syndrome. And so they're paying for an extra assistant just to help with supervision and things like that. So I was able to get, that's how I got a, an extra coach this year. Um, and that will obviously follow um, for the next three years. Let me jump in with that too, because our situations are different. So one of the things that I think is important for your listeners to know is that if you have small numbers of coaches, you can still, there are things that you can do that allow you to manage a bunch of athletes. So for example, if you've got a sprint group and a distance group and you've got to train everybody, what we like to do in our program, like in the winter, when it's only me and another coach, typically we look a lot like your program in the winter. And so what we'll do is we'll have the sprinters, they'll, they'll do their interval first, and then they have usually huge recoveries in between. Then in that recovery time period is when the distance runners might get one or two intervals in while the sprinters are standing on the sideline. Then what I do is I'll have my jumpers, if they're not running that day, they'll do plyometrics on that start finish line where I'm at. So they're never that far away from me either. And then I'll have my throwers doing medicine ball stuff, um, low level plyometrics or uh, technical footwork drills next to me as well. Now, if it's a day where the workout isn't as big of a deal where we're at in terms of like speed of running. So like, man, when I'm running, you know, um, 450s, I would like to start at the start line and finish just past the finish line in the same spot. So that would probably be the workout that would get priority and location. But if I couldn't do some of the stuff with my throwers and they needed to throw the implements or my jumpers needed to jump, then my workout where I'm running my intervals will be started at the technical event. And then the technical event decides where we place it on the track. So like a lot of people have, you know, the high jump in that D part of the infield, right? So then we might start our workout right there and all my jumpers and all my sprinters and my distance kids so that I can give a lot of technical instruction and then have my kids go through their intervals or whatever they are. So what the, the key to that is with small numbers of coaches, proximity is incredibly important. If you go beyond eight meters of distance away from somebody, they've proven this, that productivity communication shoots you the floor. So when you're doing that, you got to be smart about not only where you start the interval, but also where you're finishing it, and then what you're going to have your athletes do on the recovery to get them back to you or near you so you can communicate. So if I'm going to run a 200 repeat, I might, you know, put the 200 repeat, you know, at the one part of the D zone for the high jump, have them run 100 meters around, right? and then finish that 200 a little bit down the track, but then that way I'll stand on the other end of the D zone so I can see the kids start, watch the high jumpers, and then when the sprint kids finish, they're still only 100 meters away from me at any point, and the walk back doesn't take that long, and I don't have to scream and yell across the field. 
you know? And so when you manage these things, that's really important when it comes to the number of coaches. The technical event should typically lead where you set up the beginning of your practice. And then you got to be really conscientious about where you finish the interval to keep them close to you and be clear on the instruction. The other thing that we do, which is important, and I know I'm going off here, but I want to give people lots of information, is that when we start the practice, I am the one who literally tells all the kids where they're going. So they don't go run off, what's, what's going on? They know. They come to me and they say, Banta, who am I with? And I start going, you're with me, you're with Coach Silverman, you're with Coach Goldie, you're with Coach Burnett. And I have that. It's my responsibility to keep it organized on a chart where all the kids are going. And then especially if we're splitting the workout, like you're going to go with me to this many, you know, you're going to do the first two or four fifties, and then you're going to go with coach or you're going to be with coach at the beginning. And then when we re we finish off with our one fifties, you'll come over and join us. And, and you know, people go, Oh, that would take too long. I've got 70 kids. It doesn't take that long. And the reason why is we, not every kid's a multi-event. So like most of the kids know where to go because if they're a thrower all the time, then they don't need me to tell them where to go. If they're a distance kid all the time, they know where they're going. So now you're talking about maybe 20 kids out of 70 that need to know what their menu is for the day. So those are some things that we do to manage large numbers of kids, where they're going, and how to communicate within practice. Yeah, I... Um, I went to a coaching clinic in Iowa last winter and Todd Lane, the jumps coach at LSU spoke, he has, he spoke, he uh, did a presentation on coaching multiple groups at once. And he, he had a location in their field house where he will stand, where he can effectively coach his long jump, long and triple guys, his high jumpers and his pole vaulters at the same time. And it's just a matter of, you know, this group go, okay, I can turn this group go and I'm within proximity to effectively coach all of them and where they all feel like they're getting me. And, you know, that's, and that's, it's super important. It's really important for athletes to feel like they're, you know, getting enough of you as a coach. And that's, that's been a really big challenge of mine with having a small staff is, okay, how do I give these event groups, you know, so I coach, it's, it's changed a little bit every year. When I started out, I coached everything but distance, um, which was just too much. It was not, you know, it was, it wasn't a, a good setup. The second year I got a sprint coach. And so he did mids because that's what he ran. He did four, eight. So I did one, two, mile two. We split jumps and I did throws, which was, you know, it wasn't effective. And then um, the last two years I had a sprint hurdles coach. I did distance and throws. And then the girls head coach coached my jumpers. And that was, so last year, see, she was kind of, she used to, the girls head coach used to be the hip boys and head girls coach. And then she's just, it was too much. She didn't enjoy it. She wanted to split. So she did. And she kind of, just through the bad experience, she's like, I just want to coach my girls. I don't want to help the boys program. And then I, I guess I softened her up because she knew I cared and I, she, she liked me and she trusted me. So, you know, it was really tough at the beginning of the season, which we, we didn't have a season. So we didn't, you know, hopefully we can do a better job moving forward next year. But we sat down and, all right, there's four coaches total between boys and girls. We have got to split our resources. And it's like, okay. I'll coach boys and girls throwers, you coach boys and girls jumps, you know, and, and, but the issue that I ran into with that, and it, it's no disrespect towards her. It's just, it's hard to give up that ownership. And um, yesterday I did an interview with Marissa Chu, uh, who is the jumps coach at IUPUI. And she was talking about how, you know, 
while she would love an assistant, she's just not there yet to where she can say, okay, here you go, go do this. She wants to have her thumb on everything. And that's how I feel. And it's tough, you know, uh, you know, when you're a head coach, you want to have your thumb on everything and you should, because you know, it's your name on the program and it, you know, they're your athletes at the end of the day, while you might not be coaching them, it's still your team in that, you know, that kind of regard, that sense of ownership is there. And so it's, it's really, that's something moving forward that I, I need to work on. And I know there's, you know, because I feel like with young coaches, I'll, I'll rein this in with young coaches, they can go either one of two ways. They can either be so intimidated that they don't, you know, they just want to push off as much responsibility and only focus on what they do. But then there's, you know, which kind of what I fell into where I was really manic and I had to control every aspect and I didn't trust my assistants. And that was just not a healthy coaching environment, not only for me, but for the kids because it was just kind of, there was like, uh, there was a power struggle that didn't need to be there, those kinds of things. Um, but going for, you know, going forward, the goal is, okay, that organize the priorities of your training tell give you, you know, give my assistants the path that I want them to go on and the overlying vectors, the, you know, the, all the things and say, but give them a little bit more freedom moving forward. I am, a, you know, I've, I've been coaching there the longest on the guy's side, but I haven't been coaching there long. I've had three assistants in seven years, you know? Um, so it's every time it's been a new young coach. So part of my goal is to kind of help facilitate them as coaches and, you know, and help them grow while not giving them full reins. Is that, you know, does that make sense? But yeah, well, I'm, I, I can go on about that and what I do in that situation that might be helpful if you don't mind. Uh, uh, Please, please do. Awesome. All right. So what I typically do with this is, and it took me a while to figure it out because I was in a very similar situation as you, Andrew. I, I wanted to control everything. Here are the workouts I want you to do. These are the exercises I want you to do. These are the drills. This is the lifting I want you to do, you know? And part of the reason why I wanted that control is because to be honest, I get results, you know, and, and I get performances and the kids peak really well, you know, uh, when I have them. So like I took back over the hurdles. I, I used to write all the hurdle workouts and we had four different girls make it to state four years in a row in the one hundreds, four different kids, four years in a row. I felt pretty good about that. Um, but my assistant coach felt like, okay, well, I need to be in control. I need to do what I want to do or I'm not having any fun and I don't feel like I'm really a coach. And she's a, a former Illinois coach in Bethalto way back in the day. Her brother is a coach Burnett at O'Fallon, who's a very, very elite distance coach. So the Burnett's are like the, the, you know, first family of Southern Illinois track and field, you know, like her dad was a great coach as well. And here I am trying to tell her what to do, who has a ton of experience, both, you know, her own athletic experience and then the time that, that she's coached. And I had to, wrangle her back in because she was an assistant coach to the program before I took over and it had nothing to do with me why she didn't want to coach with me some other stuff that was going on but she stepped away and so I didn't have her as my assistant for like oh gosh I don't even know like maybe nine years or something like that or seven seven years and I finally got her to join back up in the program and we had a conversation at the end of that season and she's like hey Banta you're a control freak you need to let us coach. You need to give us the resources so we can be successful. And I did not like hearing that, but because I had evolved a little bit as a coach, 
I was like, yeah, she's probably right though. How do I facilitate that? So, you know, first and foremost, I got to share kids. I can't hoard all the talent and I've got to let my assistant coaches who have had a lot of experience write their workouts and their training and, and all that kind of stuff. Even if it goes against some of the things that I would do, who cares? I'm probably doing things that go against maybe what she does. And because we respect each other, we let each other do our work and we share talent and that way the kids can be really good. Okay, now that has nothing to do with how I progress. Through her mentorship, she says to me, hey, you've got an assistant coach who's really new and all he is is the weight room guy and the hype guy. We need to give that coach, who, and we had a, an additional coach for a little while that I actually paid out of our fundraising money to have along. And she's like, he needs an event. So, and I said, you know what, you're right. And she said, so I'm going to give up because she was coaching the jumps and the hurdles at that point. She said, I'd like to give him the high jump and that be his event along with the weight room. And I said, you know what, that's really good. And so what that ended up doing, and he was really great at it. What that ended up doing kind of sparked a, a notion in my brain. I was like, okay, how do I bring my young coaches along? Well, first and foremost, if my coach knows nothing, they will get everything kind of written out for them and how to do it and what to do that first year. So they're, they're basically a trainer for that first year. In that first year with this coach pool that I was talking about that took over my high jump, what I did with him is I did what was called the two one principle. So every two days we would both be together. And, but on the opposite days we would be split. And so he would take the sprint kids one day alone and I would take the distance kids one day alone because I didn't have a distance coach for a couple of years. And then the next day, we would combine the kids together, the sprint and the distance kid. And I call that the Baylor method where you take your best athletes from the longer stuff and the shorter stuff and you train them together. And so the advantage of that would be, and then we would flip it on the days that we would split. So then the next day we would split, he would get the distance kids, and I would get the sprinters. So what was really cool about that, if you think about it, is two out of every three days, the athletes see you. Two out of the three. So you're still in control as the head coach, but your assistant coach gets to go through the learning growth of taking the kids through that workout. But then you're never so far away from those kids that they don't feel comfortable that you're a part of it or you're understanding what's going on. And so then that coach also gets to know all of the kids in the two event groups, understands the progressions and the training, but doesn't feel totally pressured to do it all by himself, but at the same time has the freedom to do some ownership within it. But then the athletes who worry about that have you around two out of every three days as well to help manage their workouts and their training. That really helped him out a lot. Then the next year we gave him the high jump and he had the weight room and he was the hype guy. And then the next year after that, we got javelin so then he was the weight room, the hype guy, javelin, and high jump. And man, oh man, he, he's really good at the javelin. And in fact, he had to take in a principal's job at Rockwood Summit, and they're not really supposed to be coaching the principals, but he'd come out and help out the javelin girls. And they had like three or four girls that were thrown way into the hundreds in the javelin because he was able to take all the lessons he learned from the other things and not feel overwhelmed. And then because of his work, with the sprinters and distance kids, 
He had a really good relationship with them and he understood what they were doing in training. So if a kid ever felt comfortable to talk to him about like, hey, I didn't like this or this kid did this or why am I doing this event? He's like, well, remember when I did this with you, this is what's going on. So now he has a good understanding of running and two technical events. And the weight room was given to him really early because he's a college football player and he had a really good understanding of the weight room. And so that was the first thing he gave. Now, with the distance coaches, what I do there is I'll give them everything at the beginning. Then the second year or the, the second year, they're responsible for the long runs because most distance people understand recovery runs and long runs. And then I give them the responsibility of being the warm-up person on meet day as well. And the reason why I give them that responsibility is as a distance coach, they're pretty much always going to be at the track, either warming up, coaching their athletes, or watching them cool down. So all of my athletes go to the infield to meet with the distance coach, and they have different warm-ups for the first event, second event, third event, and fourth event. And so that makes them responsible for getting off their butt, going seeing coach. And coach gets to communicate with them and have a positive relationship with them as well. And in between all the distance runners and split taking, they can make sure the kids are getting the warm-ups and they're always staged on the infield. Second season, they take over the long run days and the weight room and the, you know, the warm-ups on meet days. And then in the fourth year, they take over everything, the speed, technical, lactic runs, the lactic threshold runs, the sprint days, the special endurance days, all that. And they write all of that. And it's stair steps so that they don't have to do too much too soon. And they, they, get to, they know, hey, here's the progress. Here's the progression I want to give you. Now, the other thing I try to do, and not all my coaches have done this, because you know some of them are old, crafty veterans, but with my young ones who are first coming in, I will pay for them to get a USATF level school, you know, level one, level two. I, I push them to do it, especially level one now because it's online, you know. And I will also pay for an Altus coach's education in the events that Altus has. So they have like pole vault throws, jumps, and sprints. So I pay for them to go through that school as well because that can be done at any time at your own speed. And that levels them up earlier and quicker in terminology and education and philosophy that I have. And if you think about it, I mean, the, the Altus stuff is only a couple hundred bucks. And since you can do it at any time, you could do it in the summer or the winter in the off seasons and get it done. And I don't throw all of that at the coaches right away, but I say within the first two years, I want one of these two things done. Because then when you start to create all these workouts, we want to make sure that happens. Then the last thing that I do is I will then start to give them books from people that I respect or training manuals or programs. And I'll give them like one or two a year and say, Hey, I really like you to read this, you know, so we can do kind of a book club. Or I really think this is a person that would make sense out of the things that I would want to see for your training. Now I know Andrew, I've gone on and on and on here, but I just want people to know clearly what I do to make sure that my coaches have control in a stair-step fashion, that we educate them in a stair-step fashion, that we don't overwhelm them, that we can do this in stages to build them up, to go through the experiences and not have to do what I did, which is take six years 
to really put it all together. I want to try to get him in three years to be able to put it all together. Yeah, I like – so I my distance coach started in middle, late February. So he, he was a, a – he's a college student. He's also the manager for the WIU men's basketball team. So hmm. he, his schedule is booked until they're done. And, then, you know, and, and the, you know, depending on where they go in the tournament, that could be a while. It could be really early. Who knows? But one of the things that I, um, I can't remember his name, but the head cross-country coach from Downers Grove North spoke at a clinic. And he talked about for distance runners, because I knew this kid was going to become, he ran distance for Carbondale, SIUC, and he was a really good distance runner in high school. So that was an obvious uh, group for him was he talked about training inventories. So every 14 days, he has eight kind of workouts that they have to hit every 14 days, a max V, a lactate, long, middle, speed endurance one, speed endurance two, all those things. And he's like, and then, you know, the order can change and things like that. And I remember I sat down with Jacob, that uh, that's the kid's name. And I was like, okay, what you do within these workouts, I'll give you a little bit of freedom on, but you have to hit these workouts on these days, like, so I, on this day, I want you to do a lactate workout on this day. I want you to do a long run on this day is max V that kind of stuff. And so I tried to give him like, this is the structure that I want because this is the structure that before you came on, I was going to do with the distance runners, but then here's what you get to do in that regard. And one of the things that made it really easy was on days that my sprinters did max velocity work and uh, sprint endurance work. We just combined everybody together and just, cause I only have like 45 kids. So you know, it was enough kids to where it made the whole practice go by and it was nice to be able to be with the whole team, that kind of thing. And I think that helps finding commonalities, which, you know, which you talked about with multi-event kids and it makes practice much more efficient when you can do that. And when you can bring all your coaches together and then the sprint coach can see, or I'm sorry, the distance coach can see what I'm looking for in max velocity work. And then when we go work on speed endurance or longer runs, I can pick his brain as a distance runner and see what he's looking for. And that's kind of thing. So finding commonalities and things like that in your training can make practice set up really easy, you know, and that's, it sounds really intimidating when you have all these kids going to a lot of places, but when you break it down, you know, uh, it's really not that different. Uh, Boo Schneider, there was a story I heard where he got asked, he had to coach the throws one day and they're like, can you do that? And he's like, of course I can do it. It's, it's speed and power. It's no different than coaching jumps. It's, you know, the technique's different, but the, the same, training philosophies apply to sprints or to long, you know, that kind of thing. And when you break down track events in that regard, you know, there's long distance and then there's speed and power and there's obviously specialties within that, but there's so many training commonalities between these things. And that's what makes multi-event athletes easy to coach. When you think about it, it, you know, when you first hear that, especially if you're a new coach starting out, it's like, I don't know how to make this kid do good at all these different events. It's really not hard because, you know, long jump work can be your max velocity work and hurdle. You know what I mean? There's, there's so many ways to approach it. And it's, it's, it's not intimidating and it's not hard to set all this up, which is, you know, you brought that up during your debate with coach Holler. It sounds super intimidating. Like it's all this work, but when you break it down by event, by the KPIs, which carry over from multiple events, it's not as overwhelming as, as somebody might think, you know, no, it, it isn't. You're 100% correct. And it's, all it takes is a little coordination with your assistant coaches and having a plan. And this is the thing that's frustrating. People talk about they poo-poo periodization. Yeah, I get it. Like, you know, oh, well, this workout, you know, seven weeks from now is supposed to be this and we can't get it done. Well, you might not be able to get it done, but, you know, having the workout there informs you 
on what you're wanting to do and where your well-intended design is supposed to take you. So if you never have a guide where you want to go, you can still get to what you want to do. You have the flexibility to adjust, but you always have the flexibility to adjust. Just because it's on paper, it's meant to be a guide for your intentions of your design. It's not meant to be religion. And so when people say this is really difficult to get done, it's not. It just, in fact, if anything, it's just busy work to lay out your plans. And you talked about inventory. So it's like, all right, you got all these inventories. I like to call them modules. I have like these work, these packages of workouts that basically I've put together. That takes time to kind of figure out like what you want those to look like. But once you have those in place, you don't need to reinvent the wheel. You just, okay, this is the warm-up I like. This is the drills I like. This is this in-place plyometric routine I like. This is the medicine ball routine that I like. And if jumping and medicine ball really helps your throwers, it helps your jumpers, it's probably also going to help your spinners, it's also going to help your distance kids. So there's a lot of things that you can do that are combined into those modules that don't create a lot of problem and you get a lot of crossover between the athletes. The other thing that I do to get everybody on the same page and to limit the craziness that comes with planning is every athlete in my program does our warm-up together. Now, my throwers will do 50% of the general warm-up, which is some sprinting, some walking, some hopping, some skipping. But they'll do 50% of it. So where my distance kids and my sprint kids might get up to where it looks like, oh my God, they've done a total of a mile and a half of work. But it's a mile and a half of skips, jumps, sprints, walks, repeats. You know, and it's like, so it sounds like a lot, but we don't start there. You know, I start with one lap on a, on a static warm-up day, and I start with two laps on a dynamic warm-up day, which has the side skips, the low sprints, and all this kind of stuff. And it's broken down into these little parts. So it's never a mile and a half total. It's just like 50 here, 50 there, 50 there, 100 there, or whatever. And then as the season moves along, we build it up. But that includes our flexibility training, our drills, our team huddle. And so everybody starts together. And so there's some camaraderie there. There's an opportunity for the athletes to chit-chat a little bit on the general warm-up. It's an opportunity for me to have all the athletes in the same place for our mobility work. Then I have our team huddle. And then we'll go do our running drills. And you're like, well, why would you have your throwers do the running drills? Well, just as you and I have talked about, they're probably not just a thrower. And for them to be more athletic – that's a good thing, right? It, especially if our throwers are softball players in the girls' softball team or they're linemen on the football team and a combination of anything in between. You want them to be more athletic and more mobile. So we're going to do all of that stuff together to build camaraderie and to build a globally better athlete. That stuff can't get done if you're only doing 45 minutes of practice. But the benefit of it is by spending that time is that you know that we're moving all of these people forward as athletes. They're doing all of this stuff together. And then lo and behold, you might find a kid or two that you're like, wait a second, I thought they were going to be this athlete, but they're leading the warm-up, so they look really explosive over here. Man, maybe we should try that event, even though the testing wasn't there or that kid didn't show up on the first day and you did the testing on the first two days. 
And so there's so much value there. Plus you're communicating all of the instruction to everybody on the team. So if you see something funky that a group is doing, you can address it to the whole team that probably needs to hear it as well. And then after we're done with our team huddle and our running drills, then people split into their groups. And as I told you, I tell kids that are multi-eventers where they're going to go and we divide up the day and they, they start their actual, their actual work workout. But that's a good way to get everybody doing a lot of the same things that are kind of ancillary connective tissue development, movement development together at the beginning. And you can communicate effectively to the whole team and the whole team knows they have to do something together. Now my big monster thrower girls that are only throwers. Like we had a young lady, Jayla, uh, Jayla Kelly, who's all state in Missouri and is a center in basketball. And she signed for Mizzou. I'm not going to go have her do a mile and a half of anything, you know, but she's going to make up that work technically over in the throws and the jumps and the medicine ball work that she's going to have to do, but she doesn't need that much of low skip sprints and walks because that doesn't fit her profile type. But for a distance kid, yeah. For a sprinter, yeah. And then the other thing people got to remember is we might only get to a mile and a half like one time or two times in the year as we build to it because we're going up three weeks of volume and intensity and then we unload about 10 to 20%. We go up three and then unload. And eventually what happens is you get to the middle of the season, you're there for a week, and then you start your deloading phase over the course of that. So anyway. Uh, moving on. Uh, so with that, the three on up. So obviously in, in track, we have, you know, we do, we want to peak, right? Track, lifting, weightlifting, whatever. At the end of the season, we want to peak. And you're, individual programming for that you do for the kids or, for, you know, for your groups is obviously is leading to a peak. Something that I've had issue with is over, over my years is outside factors. So when I try to make something specific for a kid, there's all these other things, you know? So like, for example, I had a kid that I think would respond very well to like a complex method bonder truck system strength training program. But after listening to Nick Garcia talk, he he's you know he's a three sport athlete he does basketball and soccer and those are factors that i can't account for because i don't control their practice you know i have no say in what they do in season and same you know i have kids where um that love to just go play basketball at the y for hours after practice and just come in and they're fried you know so like they can't do like their mac their their cns is shot because they've been doing 10 extra hours a week of this, you know, high plyometric activity. And so when we do like max velocity work, they're not fast and they're not fresh and they're taking it out on me when it's all these extra factors or, you know, even with high school students not getting enough sleep, you know, they're staying up till two in the morning playing video games or hopefully doing homework or whatever, you know, all these outside factors. How do you, do you take, you know, when you're writing programs for kids, do you consider those at all? Or is that something that you try to work around? So the quick answer is yes, 100%. The, the longer answer is we attack that problem throughout the year with different things. So one of the things we'll do once a week, again, typically on a Tuesday, Tuesday is kind of our talk day, um, talk day Tuesday. We will break down things for kids for those 22 to 21 hours that they're away from you. And so we talk about sleep hygiene. We make it sound fancy. So that way the kids are like, ooh, what's the sleep hygiene thing? But we then break it down and say, hey, like here are the 10 things that help you go to bed. Have a schedule. Make your bed before you get into it. 
Um, take a nice cold shower at night. Have a white noise fan going. Have a down blanket that's cooler, that kind of has a cool feel to it, and a fuzzy blanket that's warm. So as your body goes through heating and cooling throughout the night, you have the two blankets that when you're kind of half awake and half not, you can switch up. Um, talking about reading a boring book or stretching or having blackout shades or the fact that, you know, on your cell phone, you've got that schedule that can do the blue light filter towards the end of the day that'll just automatically start doing it or go to daylight or dark darkness mode in the night. And we break all of that stuff down. We talk about having a particular place to study, that your bed is not a place to do homework or to watch TV. Your bed is purely for sleep. And so what that does is then we attack that, and that would be a session, right? And then the other thing we do is we talk about, I'll talk to him about general training theory. And, the, and we beat that drum. And you know, Andrew, even though I'm being interviewed by you and other people, like I still battle the same problems that you guys have. And, it, and, it, and the thing is, is it's never done, right? These cultural things that we try to implement outside of practice, if you stop talking about them and addressing them, they'll rear their ugly head again. The water never stops coming down the waterfall. You know, you can build a dam, but the dam is going to have to have maintenance all the time to continue to do its job to fight that waterfall of nonsense. And so we address all of those things. And even though we do that, you'll have a dad or a mom that will go seek out somebody else to go train with. And I'm like, guys, I am the sprint guy in, in St. Louis, Missouri. I had the deepest 100-meter squad. You score it like a cross-country team and the deepest 400-meter squad. We were the winners. We were the virtual meet champions for sprints athletes if we coached them or we scored them like a cross-country meet. And you still have parents who will go search out it because they're like, ooh, I get to run on the Vertimax. And it's like, well, what does the Vertimax have anything to do with what we're trying to do? Okay, so we use narratives and stories that are true of former athletes who have made mistakes to keep those situations from happening. Because if you just talk about some, oh, this could happen, they'll be like, whatever. But if you make it real by providing connective tissue of location, school, event, personality type, they will be more likely to listen, especially if you have a kid that's comfortable in sharing that, like their own mistakes, or if you and I as athletes, we've had mistakes sharing our own personal stories about it, kids will pay attention. Now, the good news is if you just do it once a week where you're huddle, is like more intense. Kids will listen better than doing it every day and beating the drum every day. Like how many times, Andrew, have you like complained to the kids that they didn't communicate to you and there's a bunch of kids missing that day and you're yelling at the kids that are there, you know? And it's like, they're there. Those aren't the kids you need to talk to. It's the kids that keep missing because they know Monday's going to be a tough day, you know? And there's ways that we can deal with that, by the way. We can talk about that too in terms of building a team. But we always talk about don't screw up the two hours or three hours of work that we've put in today. And then, you know, work, there's lots of recovery in there with something dumb in the other 22 hours to 21 hours of a day that we don't see. you. Don't eat twice for what you didn't eat yesterday. 
So if you didn't do the workout yesterday, we're not going to double up the workout. We're not going to do more work. So we talk to them about respecting the recovery as well. If we give you a recovery day, it's there for a purpose. If we give you a work day, it's there for a purpose. We, and I tell them and I show them the whole plan. I say, look, this plan is 100 pages long. You know, there's a ton of workouts here. And so know that we've really thought about this and we've really put this together with some understanding of what we're trying to get done. Now, that's scary because when you have that plan, some kids might take and go oh, show their AAU coach or their this or that. But you have to remember there's a lot of adjustment that goes on like we just talked about. I'm not wedded to the plan, but that day gives me an idea of what I was trying to do, which then allows me to adjust it. The other thing we talk to the kids about all the time is we can make you good, but you decide if you're great. So if you screw up outside of practice, that's on you. The responsibility on you. We bring in a nutritionist to talk about food and to be careful with diets because there's a lot of kids, especially out in our area, where it's really affluent. We have a lot of liberal folks who are all about vegan diets and, and all this kind of and vegetarian diets. And those are incredibly dangerous for young people because they're incredibly dangerous for adults who have like some level of understanding and intelligence. And not to say that young people don't, but they really don't know how to manage that diet. And so we try to talk to them about it. And I'm not going to do it because it's not about being skinny. It's about fueling the kids. So I'll bring in a nutritionist to talk to the kids about good dietary choices. And again, we'll do that as a huddle. Now, when we do the talk long Tuesdays, okay, we'll do that in a classroom setting, which also enhances them to pay attention to what we're asking of them. And that's really important. Because what happens is if you're outside, they're looking at the boys or the girls, they're looking at the soccer team practicing, they're looking at somebody driving their really fancy car down the street, they're constantly distracted. So when you're trying to teach them something that's about the 22 to 21 hours outside of practice, that needs to be in a classroom setting to hold their attention. So those are some things that we do. And then we monitor our athletes and we talk to them a lot. And by doing our drills and spending time with that, there are those individual conversations of like, oh, I went on a long run yesterday. It's like, no, Sunday was an off day. You were to do nothing, you know, or, oh, I played J basketball. And we have those, which is the JCCA, it's a community center in our area. And we'll talk to the kids before the season starts. Like, hey, these are the workouts. This is what we're doing. We tell the parents, this is the expectations. These are the things that you are allowed to help support us with. These are the things that are non-starters, and these are the things we can talk about before the season starts or after the, after the season, but you're not to go take Bobby or Susie out on a long run. You're not to go take them to the weight room. You're not to go do extra work, you know, and I had parents, and typically the parents that do that the most, that, that don't listen, are the ones that have the kids that are the most problematic, you know but we try to cut all of that as much down as we can by having those conversations ahead of time, picking a particular subject on a Tuesday we want our athletes to do, and then we go through kind of creating a curriculum so that the kids can understand why we're asking them to do it. And then we have narratives of people in the past or myself or another coach that made those mistakes and hopefully through all of those mean, means, you can reduce 
that 21 to 22 hour nonsense that takes place. That was for me specifically, the issue was that is because I tried to go to a lower dosage, lower volume system for, you know, for my team, for my approach. And, you know, and I've always been a low volume guy in the weight room. We've never gone, you know, I found that two has been a, two days a week has worked really well for me over the years. Um, but I had a football player come out for track for the first time. And he's like, oh, we don't lift five days a week. No, we don't lift five days a week. That's not effective. This is not, this might be off season for football, but it's in season for track. And I found I would, when I would go to the Y at five 30 in the morning to work out, I'd see him there bench pressing every day and squatting every day. And then I said, you know, you, listen, what you do outside of practice is your own time. I, I can't control it. I can tell you what you should be doing. But then you can't come to me and say, well, I'm not running fast because I'm sore. You're sore because you've been lifting at the break of dawn on your own with no uh, rhyme or reason. You're just doing it because you feel like you have to do more work. And so don't come to me and say, you know, I'm not getting faster. Track isn't working. It's just because you're not following, you know, when you have a plan in place, whatever the system you're using, it's there for a reason. And the setup is there for a reason. So when kids go outside of that, it's just been very frustrating for me when then they don't think that what I do works. That right. Way. Exactly. And it's, it's one of the most infuriating things is like as a coach, you know, I've had some success and that success over 19 ish seasons has allowed me to then have stories to say, Hey, I had a kid just like you talked about who was going to the YMCA and he met some random meathead was like, yo, bro, I'll get you real jacked up and juicy, you know, and we'll get you ready to rock. And I, and I had to, I had to basically embarrass him. And, and that's when I was coaching football. So I had a little bit more gravitas with the dudes than I do right now. And that's okay. It's, that's things go. but you know, I had to say, Hey man, like, I know what I'm doing. You know, like I've produced this many people in this short amount of time. This is where we were. and This is what we've accomplished. Well, lo and behold, he's that kid that I told you about that, ended up setting the bench press record and all that kind of stuff. And so then he ended up being a story about listen to your coach. And then he ended up being a story about not only listen to your coach, but if you do, here's what's going to happen. So it, it became a double positive, you know, but we all battle that and you battle it all the time. Like I have a kid in my program right now who's running for a program and every kid that I've, that I've had that has torn a hamstring has been with someone else in the off season because they're doing very limited things and not low volume, but it's just limited in scope. Like you can do like limited sprint training, but it's just like you're running repeat 150s over and over and over again. It's limited, but it's incredible in volume. And then the other thing we try to do with the kids is we'll give them a, a big brother or big sister that their responsibility is as a big brother and big sister is to talk to the kids about why we do what we do, because I can't be the only voice. If I'm the only voice, they're going to tune me out. That's why parents get so frustrated with their kids, but then their kids go to a school and they're like angels for the teachers. Well, that's a different voice. It's a different relationship. You know, they're going to be different for them. Hopefully that's, that's what I want. I want my kids to be better at school than they are with me for sure. You know, because I know they're going to, we're going to have conflict. We're going to have fights and things like that. My own children. But the, but the big sisters, they can help you with that. And, the, and we tell them, like, look, when it's a day off, you've earned the day off. 
We're going to work hard when it's necessary to work hard. And then when it's time to recover and rest, that's just as important. So we talk to the kids about work, recovery, nutrition, sleep. Like those three things or four things are like the most important and they have their importance. The other thing we tell kids too is that every part of practice is equally important, even though you and I know that when push comes to shove, if we've got a thrower, they need to throw. If they're a sprinter, they need to sprint. But if we plan it and we have space for it and we value it as the coach, then the athlete needs to know it's that valuable too. So what happens with our athletes, track athletes will totally disrespect the weight room. They don't do what's necessary in the weight room. Football guys will disrespect what's on the track, and then they'll try to be he-man in the weight room. And we tell kids all the time, like, look, some of your numbers in the weight room are going to be suppressed right now because that's not the phase that we're working on. But when we go back to prioritizing the weight room during the summer, your numbers are going to jump through the roof because your central nervous system now can pump the electricity to twitch that weight so much faster, so much stronger, and so much more accurate that your squat, your deadlift, your Olympic lifts, and your bench are going to go through the roof. Just trust the process. And then again, here's the narrative of somebody I've been with or myself or an athlete who's gone to school here that's done this and did it right. And here's the progression, you know, because sometimes they don't see that, you know, because they've never been through it. So they have to have some kind of connected narrative story to them to make them trust it. So do you, do you run uh, like a, a year round strength program for your track and cross country kids? Do you yes. do that? You do that yes. Yes. Every kid in my program lifts weights and they all lift weights all year round. In the winter, the weight room is a priority. We lift four days a week in the weight room. We would lift five if I could be there, but I, you know, I want to be married to my beautiful wife. So on Fridays I go home, you know, so that I can have a Friday, Saturday, Sunday in the winter with them. Um, but we lift and we lift. So we do about 50, 50, 50% of the time on the track and then 50% of the time in the weight room. So my off season weight room or my off season winter conditioning goes from two forty five to 5.30. Now that doesn't mean that every kid's there from 2.45 to 5.30 because again, it's not mandatory. They can leave if they need to. They can come late if they need to. I try to be the yes guy as much as I can. Now with that being said, if they're not there with regularity, then we're not going to move them through different phases in the weight room. We're going to keep it very vanilla and they're going to be doing a lot of the same stuff all the time. If they're there pretty much every day, then we start to phase things in and we'll do, you know, three weeks in the off season as a phase. And then we move it to another phase and we get after it. And I've had kids make huge progressions in the weight room and they will be a little bit thicker. they will be a little bit bigger, but then in the track season, like you, Andrew, we go two or three days a week, more, more often two days a week. And then because of that, then we just, Find the weight room routine. They're doing upper and lower body on the same day. And we just make sure we get the big banger lifts in to do that. Then in the summer, when I had kids in summer track and we weight lifted, we'd weight lift after every session. And with cross country, we pretty much weight lift after every session in cross country as well. 
Then when we get into cross country in the regular season, we go back to about three days a week. Believe it or not, it's actually easier sometimes to get in the weight room in cross country than it is in track just because, you know, we have more, we have less training groups going on in cross country because you're training to the same race. And so it makes it easier to time everything up to get everybody in there at the same time. So we're much more likely to lift three times in the fall. And I also believe with distance runners, and I know people won't believe this, that might be more important to weight lift because the contractile speeds of the weight room is going to mimic more that slow movements that they're doing in cross country and then up and down hills, which are way more important. So strength up and down hills is a very important thing in cross country more than it is on a flat surface and track, which a lot of people don't think about. So we, we lift all year round. I have a plan for them all year round. And depending on their event group, the ancillary lifts will change. And then if they're there all the time in the winter, we will phase them through a lot of different phases of the weight room as well. And then in the spring, we'll do that. Um, but it's a much more, again, general routine in the spring, but they'll still have progressions in the spring as well. I love that. I'm really glad that you, as the cross country coach, and you know, as as you know, as a track coach, your distance kids lift often. That has been such a hard selling point for me. Was for my distance kids is they don't, you know, it, they don't want to be big or bulky. And my part of my battle with that is because the cross country coach they don't lift at all. They do no strength training across country, and so and they tend to buy into more what he says than I say. And that's, you know, that's all other can of worms, but um, yeah, it's re it's refreshing to hear you say that, you know, your cross country kids are lifting multiple times a week because it's something I've been trying to sell. My big thing with, even with them is not only just getting stronger is always, you know, better to an extent, obviously there's a, there's a cap to everything, but yeah, I'm a huge advocate just for injury prevention and working those tendon connections that you mentioned and all those little, um, fascia connections that they don't get from going on a 10 mile run. And uh, luckily my, my new distance coach, he lifted in high school and he understands the benefits of that. And he, when he went to Carbondale, it even further that. Um, and so he's helping me sell that. So, which is good, but I, I, it's refreshing to hear as a distance coach that you are very pro weight room. Well, and, and it's one of those things that like, it takes time to get everybody on board, but once you have some success, you can then say, look, this is what we've done for these kids. This is what I believe you can do. This is why I do this. This is the philosophy behind it. Like girls, girls have 10% of testosterone that men do. That's a fact, no matter what anybody in the media wants to tell you. And so because of that, it allow, it, those girls aren't going to get bigger. They're not going to get big. They're going to stay sinewy and light. But hormonally, they get a benefit from that. They get recovery like if they don't lift they actually hurt their recovery because the body spikes up human growth hormone which then replenishes that female athlete with guys you know over the course it's again global stuff yeah you might gain a pound or two over here but that's going to give you power and strength and a better profile and if you're lifting correctly it's going to give you more mobility with strength simultaneously. So there's a benefit there as well, you know, and in cross country, you want to be able to get up and down hills and all that kind of stuff. And so for me, I've been lucky, like, you know, we have the state championship record in the four by eight, you know, and if you look at my program, the biggest production year in and year out for my program has probably been in the 800. 
um, if you, you like, if you do the little cross country score for the 800 and then you do it all time in mile split, that's my best group, you know, and I've had a ton of different kids in that event that have had a lot of success, but then I've also coached girls who were foot locker, all Americans in cross country. And then I've coached short sprint state champions and state runners up in the hundred. And like, I tell the kids, I'm like, look, trust that we have a reason for doing this. And what's unfortunate for the cross country team not to lift weights. And this is kind of getting into my point. I'm sorry. I'm going all over the place, but like, if all you do is run or all you do is run repeat tens for your sprint workout, or all you do is go on long runs for your distance team, or all you do as a thrower is you go bench press, which is a common thing for throwers, right? Everybody who's competing against you is doing that. So how do you separate yourself with other modalities to make you better than them? Well, guess what? That means you got to lift weights. You got to do plyometrics. You got to do hurdle mobility. And everything has its time and place in your program, but you're taking the symphony of athleticism, all these instruments that are playing beautiful music, and you're pushing it to a point which is the most momentous time in that song, which should be at your major competitions, to time it where it makes the best sound, you know, through performance. And I get so frustrated because, like, I look at it, it's like, well, I could do more mileage, you know, but everybody does more mileage. And along the way, as I'm building up mileage, my kids are getting hurt. So that doesn't, that mileage loses its benefit, you know? So, like, with Tony, one of the things I am 100% doing in cross country this year, which goes against what I talked about with my track kids, is they are probably going to get a day off every week. I'm going to give them a straight up a day off. Because I know that my cross-country kids are neurotic sometimes. They are tired all the time because they're in honors classes and their bodies need more recovery. And the kids that I'm coming across more and more have no athletic experience whatsoever. So doing even things that we would think 10 years ago were very small and low volume to them seems like almost insurmountable when they face them. And then also in cross country, it's the hottest, worst weather of the year when they have to start their season. And so what am I going to do on those days where they're off? We'll do our talk Tuesdays, but it probably won't be Tuesday, you know, and we'll do some of that stuff, but then I'll feel a little bit more comfortable doing the extra things, the other routines, the other units of work, because I am giving them that day off. I don't feel so bad about, okay, we went on a lactic threshold run and now we're going to go to the weight room. You know, I'm not going to worry about that. Cause like, well, but I'm going to give you 48 hours before you got to come back and compete again in practice or in a race or whatever it may be. And so anybody listening to this, be open-minded for sure, but also be willing to do more stuff, not because it looks cute, but because it makes your athletes better. If you aren't doing the weight room, if you're not doing flexibility suppleness training, if you're not doing speed work, if you're not doing plyometrics, at some point, the kid is missing out on an opportunity to get better because all of these different stimuluses hit a different note in the symphony. 
And if it isn't getting hit, the music isn't going to sound as good. And the end result won't be as good. Like I tell people all the time, like I coached Emily Sisson for six months. Emily Sisson did two-a-days all the time. People are like, oh my God. What people don't realize is Emily was doing a two-a-day where she was on the ground working really hard. But then the other two-a-day was in the pool, on the bike, on the elliptical. And we got her to lift weights. We got her to improve her warm-ups, her flexibility. Because she had no flexibility. We improved her mechanics. You know, and so in that short amount of time that I got to coach her, we PR'd all the way across the board. But if all we were doing was upping her mileage, which is what she was already good at, then eventually we're going to hit a wall where there's no improvement to be had. And that's where like a distance coach is like, oh, we don't have time for that. BS. If you don't want to do a whole bunch of warmups and a whole bunch of drills at the beginning, because you're like, I got to get my long run in. Okay. But now that you've taken that out, now you might be able to slide in a weight room routine or a plyometric routine because you've taken out the warm-up. It doesn't have to happen every day, you know, with that event. And that's what we found. We're like, man, we're not getting some of this ancillary stuff in that we really want to do. A lot of core work, yoga, um, you know, weight room stuff. So we're like, let's shorten our warm-up down, you know, which again, Tony Holler, right? But, but, we're, but we're not shortening it down to get out of practice early. We're shortening it down to get some of this other stuff that we really value that we feel we need in our program. So you just adjust by removing and adding things in that you feel need to be done so that symphony can be played. That makes a lot of sense. And if I'm ever fortunate or maybe unfortunate to coach, coach cross country, I, I definitely will keep all that in mind. It's, it's not, we're, it's 2020. We're so far in where we're at with training and the biomechanic science and all these things that anecdotally just over time, we know that, you know, if a kid wants to become a really good two miler, then he doesn't need to just run a hundred miles a week. There's so many other effective ways to do it. And all, you know, it's not just more is, you know, more is not always better, but variety is the key to a lot of things. And you're right. The, the easy answer is, and you know, and it could be not just cross country with anything. Oh, I'm not strong enough. I need to lift more. Maybe you just need to change what you're, how you're lifting and, you know, add a different kind of style or program, you know, things like that. It's not, the easy answer is we'll just do more, not necessarily, you know, just do a little less of something and add in a little bit more variety. You can keep the volume the same, but if you're doing different things, it's a different stimulus. So you're improving. And so that you're, I think you hit the nail on the head there. I mean, it makes, and I really love your symphony metaphor there, you know, with training, you know, you're there in front of everybody with your little stick, telling them what notes to hit when and things like that to make this beautiful sound. And when it comes all together, it is, you know, when your program at the earth, the championship part of the season and it's, you know, conference or for you know, Illinois conference and sectionals and state, and it all comes together and it's just the kids feel great and they're PRing like when they should and things like that. It's, it's like music. It's just a beautiful thing to see, you know, as a coach when that's what you're looking for. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so we've, we've mentioned his name, I, you know, we've covered a lot um, of your, your, of your system and the individualization. I think people hopefully, cause I know when I heard you talk about it for the first time in that debate, it got my wheels turning a lot. And that's why I knew immediately I wanted to talk to you on the, you know, in this platform, when you debated Tony, 
what was that like as a coach and, you know, putting out your ideas there for hundreds of people to see and to kind of judge, right? You know, when, when, you, when you think Tony has amassed this huge Twitter following and feeds the cats, you know, he's got that, the championship production DVD set. He's spoken at all kinds. He's got TFC consortium and all this, you know, all this stuff. Was that, what was that like, you know, because I, I think we all want to get to a point where we're so established like he is and like you are, where we can confidently put out, put out what we do and why we do it, you know, in that regard. And you've had so much success. So it, it, it's, you know, it's easy for you because you have years of empirical data to, you know, to say that, but what was, you know, I guess, what was that like going against Tony, you know, for you? Was that, was it ever, was it intimidating at all? Were you, were you ever like, Oh, maybe he's right. Am I wrong? <laughs> was that, you know, or were you like, no, I know I'm right. And this is why. Well, you know, the topic was the 400. So we're talking about the 400. I feel really confident, uh, you know, in the long sprints, 800, four by eight, four by four. I mean, I have the state record in the four by eight, you know, I got the fastest girls in the state in the 800, you know, I, I many years uh, in the 400, we've been state champions and runners up twice in the time that I've been there with three entirely different groups of kids. Every time I go to state in the 400, except for four by four, except for last year when we had a girl break her leg, okay, in a freak accident, all right, we've been all state in the four by four. And even in that situation, running my B squad at the state championship, it took the fastest girl running the anchor leg in the four by four for the team that beat us for the team state title uh, to, for us to be bumped out of being all state. So I felt very confident in that regard. Now, if we're talking about short sprints, that's the idea of the critical mass is that, yeah, a lot of elements of what Tony does is what I'm going to do with my short sprinters, which we, we haven't really kind of talked about because I talk a lot about the longer stuff, but like in the shorter stuff, you know, my kids are going to see max velocity and acceleration twice a week outside of the competitions, you know, then they're going to see that probably three times, which fits very much into the feeds the cat system. So like a Monday workout for a two, four might look like Baylor, you know, because that's the type of kid for the critical mass. But for a kid like, um, Oh, I got this young lady right now. Her name is Danny Taylor. And she doesn't even know how darn good she's going to be. She's definitely a feed the cat kid. Or a young lady that I had a couple years ago, Taylor Foster, who I talked about on another podcast. She was like a 14-6 handheld, 100-meter girl the very first time she ever raced. It's so slow, you know. But by the time we were done and I figured out what she needed, she was all stayed on a 4 by one all stayed on a 4 by 2 as a leadoff leg. She broke the stagger on everybody and ran 1280 FAT into a headwind in the 100-meter dash by the time I was done. That's, that is, give or take, whatever the real handheld time would have converted FAT. That's a two-second drop. And she was not fat. She was not out of shape. And so what people understand is, like, I don't worry about, you know, Tony's ideas because I use Tony's ideas. My, my thing is, and for those specific type of kids, and every year I've got a small group of kids that train with that. And again, I'm the coach. So those kids are doing some of their intervals right next to the other kids doing the longer intervals. And I start them in the same place. So I don't have to move around. They just finish in a different spot. And then because I have huge recoveries, 
you know, they can fit their next shorter interval within that recovery because it doesn't require as much time and it, and it fits my training, hence the critical mass, hence how you fit this into your program. And so I, I love Tony. I respect Tony. I, I love his cavalier kind of in-your-face attitude about stuff. I think Tony's done a ton to promote and push football coaches back into track and field for their kids. I mean, I think in the last six years, he's probably led the charge for that where kids are doing track again. And it's because they know like, hey, this really is going to fit my 40 time, my, you know, whatever I'm doing for football, I'm not going to get my legs blown out. You know, it's not going to take away too much from me, you know, and it's fun to, I get it, you know. Um, but do I totally agree with all his ideas? Not for everything. You know, I, I think there needs to be more nuance and you need to be a coach. And as a coach that requires a lot of planning and training and allowing your championship venue what are your championship schedule your facilities and your athletes to dictate what that training will look like and then if you have a good toolkit you can plan that stuff ahead of time because you got four or five different workouts going and they're like all right this kid really does fit this so this is what we're going to apply we're going to apply this stimulus with the expectation of this coming out um tony's got a huge following and, you know, the book probably helped get him some more reach that people were really interested in that. Tyrone up in uh, Canada, who does the World Speed Summits, interviewed Tony and I at the same time. And at that point, I didn't know who Tony was. And when I heard Tony, I was like, man, that stuff is cr- really like, that's crazy, you know, but over time. I was like, oh, okay, I see what he's doing. I know what his motivation is. He loves his kids. He loves the sport of track now, and he wants them to love it, you know? And so he's created this system to get it done. Okay, now why is he doing that? Oh, okay, because the state situation benefits him to train his kids that way versus where I'm at in Missouri. Oh, he's got indoor, He's got an indoor track, you know? So then it creates this opportunity for me to go as a compare and contrast to say, well, that works. That's very valuable. That's great. But here's why I think this would work for most people in most situations that have a, a schedule at a state championship that makes more sense than Illinois. Illinois state championship schedule, we already talked about it, but it doesn't make a lot of sense. And so for me, I was, I was excited. I like that. You know, I've, you know I've, I enjoy it. And the good news is, is that I feel, and I don't know, I can't speak for Tony, but I feel like Tony respects me enough to be respectful. And I felt like I was able to be respectful to him, even though I got it, I kind of started pushing his buttons through the talk because I wanted to. And, um, but I also wanted to create some compare and contrast, not to just say, hey, G Willikers, here's nice guy number one and nice guy number two, you know? And at the same time, it's like, here's what I believe and this is why I do what I do. And it was the 400 meter debate. Now, I think the uh, debate would have gotten a lot more feisty if it was the shorter stuff, because even in my own understanding and critique of my own system, I would say Tony's system makes more sense in in some of the shorter stuff. Um, And so, you know, if you're going that way, 
then it would be a lot harder for me to really bat around uh, a conversation with him, but would maybe make it more intense because then we'd really start getting into the nitty gritty of training and training design. But I loved it. I enjoyed it. I think it's healthy to do that. I think it was healthy for him to hear those things too, because it made him think about his system. And I think it also raised a lot of eyebrows and thoughts for other coaches that have been maybe going with that system and said, I like it, but I'm feeling like maybe there's something over here. And what I think all coaches need to understand is that hunch, that gut feeling that you have is very important. So don't ignore it. If you're like, oh man, I don't feel like we're getting this, you know, then that might be something you need to really consider and wake up to. Just like in the late 90s and the early 2000s, when everybody's trying to mimic Clyde Hart and they've got all these kids getting broke and the only event they are good at is the 4x4 and 400 and 800, and you're like, man, nobody likes track. Yeah, probably not. Maybe, you know, fully diving into that system two feet first might not be what you need to do for all your athletes. And to copy and paste is a dangerous proposition. So... Yeah, I, I know I'm rambling, but I, 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 I enjoyed it. I appreciated it. I felt the viewers and people listening appreciated it. And I think it's great for coaches to have a respectful conversation. And uh, there was, a, I think it was two strength coaches had a debate like that about 10 years ago about their two different systems. And it was like really heated and people were really like, they, they've talked about it like this legend. And I was like, we should... Tony and I should do this because there's enough difference between the two of us. This could be interesting. This could be spicy. And, you know, we had nearly 200 people sign up for it and listen in for four hours. It's a lot of fun, especially when there's not a lot of fun going on in quarantine. Yeah, no, I, I loved, um, <laughs> I've, I, I've signed up for a lot of webinars during quarantine, like a lot of coaches did. And I remember telling my girlfriend, like, hey, I've got one. I don't remember what night you guys did it, but I was like, She's like, oh, okay, so I got to find something to do for like an hour and a half. I was like, I, I, it's just, <laughs> this one's going to go for a while. And I remember she was, we, we finished dinner and she was in the living room. And when it was over, she was, lights were off in, the, in all the house and she was in bed. And I was like, I just got done. It was amazing. I was like, and she was like, that. she's like, what did you do for four hours? And I was like, had my mind blown. <laughs> <laughs> and I got to reiterate because I think if, I, out of all the valuable things you said in the first part of our conversation, um, the thing you said at the very end um, where you do feed the cats for athletes that are cats, you know, and, and with sprinters and, you know, even mids, there are guys that are four or two, four guys that, you know, like a 400 primary 400 guy might be a two, four, but he also might be an eight, four. And those are separate. And, you know, that's where in like you talked about, my the girls team not my team the girls team last uh not last season but the last full season we had their four by one four by two four by four and four by eight were the same four girls because they were the four fastest at all four events right and that's where you know feed the cats kind of gets tricky you know because like you you'll have an 800 guy or girl that's also a hundred you know meter runner extremely well and that you know that's why when like I said, my wheels were turning after listening to you talk about it during the debate where it's like, yeah, this, it makes, especially when I have a smaller team, smaller, I say, you know, about 40, 45 guys, it, it, it's, it's so 
you want a system that can facilitate success in a multitude of events where, you know, and I remember when I told one of my, one of the uh, coaches that I greatly respect, one of my mentors, um, I was like, yeah, I really like what Tony's saying. I want to do feed the cats. And, you know, his response was, well, you're going to be really good in the one, two, but you're not going to be good in the four or, or the eight. And, you know, Tony has disproven that you can, you can, if you do feed the cats that you're not going to have good, because he has four by fours in the state champ, you know, in the finals of state multiple times throughout the year or multiple seasons, I should say. So, but is it the most effective way to train your, your mid guys? Probably not. You know, you can argue no. And, you know, so to, to put a blanket over your, you know, team like that, I think could be kind of handicapping yourself. 100%. And, and, 100%. You're asking, and that's, yeah. and I, you know, I, I say that in, in complete and utter respect for everything Tony does because I, you know, I'm just a lowly West Central Illinois track coach who doesn't know anything. But, well, you know, it, it, you got to ask those questions, you know, at, for your program. Right. And training has consequences. So you're, you know, if I would train my kids exclusively with 350s, 450s, come back with like race model 350s and tons of 200s and never do days with acceleration or max velocity or never run them in the short stuff like that. And you got, when you get better and you have a bunch of kids, you can start to figure out, okay, this kid's the fastest kid in my school, but are they really a hundred meter person? Like I had a young lady last year who was, you know, she was number two in the state in the 100 and 200. And she was uh, ranked in the top 50 or excuse me, 15, 15, one, five in the 200 for freshmen. And then this winter, you know, ran a bunch of sixties and became one of the fastest girls in the 60. All right. Now the funny thing about it was, is, and this is a prime example, I said, okay, I'm not going to run the four by four with her because this girl's this darn fast. So, and I kind of banked on the fact of that story I told you about earlier, that the fastest girl in the state also happened to be the fastest girl in the 400, that they were going to put her on the four by four because it only made sense based on the other girls that they had in their program. It's like, this is their best chance to win state is in the four by four. So I'm not going to put my best kid on it because I do believe she might be the first 200 meter true blue kid. And then 100 meter, she's the, she has the chance to break our school record there. I'm going to train her more to the cat direction than I typically would because she's truly that now training has consequences. She ended up running, you know, 2444 as a freshman in a 200 and was top 15 in the nation. She changes and goes to a club, okay, in the winter, and she gets her 60 way down to being one of the fastest 60-meter dashes in the nation. But her 200 wasn't even one of the fastest in the races that she ran because she wasn't doing the other stuff, right? Now, here's the thing where we got to be really smart. One coach would say, well, what the hell? You're not good at the 200 anymore. That's terrible. They must be screwing up your training. And I don't have any idea what the conversation is with the other coaches with the program. But how I look at it is it's like a baton. So you're passing that athlete between us. It's like, all right, so she's really got a good start now. She's got one of the fastest 60s in the country, but she's placing eighth or ninth in the 200 in these indoor races. Well, good. I'm going to maybe now move her from feed the cats to the critical mass system 
to then make that stimulation come through. And this girl's going to run 23-something in the 200 as a sophomore. Now, of course, we had COVID, and so we couldn't get that done. But I knew it's like, all right, I'm not going to be like, oh, what they're doing is wrong. It's like, no, what they did is right for the phase. Awesome. They fixed that problem. Now, when I get her in the regular season, she's still going to run a fast 100, like real fast, probably like 1170, you know. And we're going to run in the t- way into the 23s in the two. We're going to smoke everyone. Awesome. And so that's one of the things that coaches need to understand when they look at this. It's not like, hey, that guy's right or wrong. It's what can we apply now with the knowledge that we have? What are the weaknesses in the offseason that we can attack? The start, feed the cats. And then in the regular season, Let's ride those strengths and build on the fix that you made there. And when we blend those together, man, it's going to be amazing. Hence the idea of reaching a critical mass. You put these things together to make a nuclear reaction in this big boom explosion. That's the whole reason why we called it that, is that you're taking these things to produce the best event, best performance at the best time with different things. And you just – and that's the way coaches need to be thinking. And so that's like with Tony and me, if somebody's listening to what we're doing, my thing would say to anybody who listens to these conversations is training has consequences, figure out what they're doing, move the needle for the athlete. Think of the athlete like being a baton, being passed around if you have other coaches training with them, attack weaknesses in the offseason, build on strengths in the regular season, figure out what really the athlete's best event is through testing and then circling them through a bunch of different events and realize that because that training has consequences, there is a give and take. You're not going to be the best at the 400 if you're only running repeat 20s. That's just not the case. But you can be very good anyway. You know, just like before I had Kaylin and I had these other girls and I was doing the critical mass system, I had two girls that finished second in the state championship in the 100. So it didn't necessarily hurt them. You know, I had a girl run 11-7, you know, in my program doing this type of training. And then she could run a four and she could run a two and she was a stud. But if I would have known what I know now, could I have gotten her to be the fastest girl in state history by feeding the cats with this kid and just saying, I'm going to run somebody else on my four by four and four by two, or I probably still have my four by two, but somebody else on my four by four, because this kid could be this way. And as we evolve as coaches, those are the things that will haunt you, but also help you become a better coach as you have a more nuanced understanding that isn't cut and paste or, Ooh, I like that real simple concept. You know, is it simple, you know, and it's simple in a negative way, or is it simple because it's like the aha thing. And so you go through this evolution and you figure that out and then you apply these ideas of training to best fit the kids you have. And so that's the thing I feel like I hope people got out of that debate and I hope people listening to me and listening to Tony understand that these are the things we've gone through because he's evolved too. He used to be a lot more like me, you know, or even more than what I do early on in his career. And what a lot of people don't realize he had a lot of success that way too. He won a lot of state titles with that and four by four state titles. But to him, was that as worth it as what he's doing now? And kids absolutely love it. 
you know, what's the better choice? I'm pretty sure he would argue where he's at now is better because he's evolved in that direction. I think it, 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 you just got to figure out where you sit as a coach, where you are as a coach. And if I could not to, you know, not to make something so, well, what seems complicated sounds so simple, but the thing that's personally where the critical mass system is just a huge thing that I intrigued by you have to be athlete driven, not program driven. You know, understand we, right. one, of the, one of the mistakes and, and Tony has said this before. He's one of the people that I heard this from was we make the mistake of thinking that our system is what makes our athletes good and not vice versa. Now you have to have a good system to make those athletes the best they can be. That's not to say that any athlete that's, you know, will be good regardless of the system. That's, we, that's not true, but you have to be flexible you know, workouts are written on paper, not carved in stone for a reason. And I just, I just think that's the most out of everything that you said, the thing that that just sticks with me is kids are different. And so you need to, you know, kids are, are different. So you need to be flexible to fit whatever that kids need because that's your responsibility as a coach. And I, and I would say when we're being judged, when, when Tony and I are both dead and buried and people look back, for a short period of time because you're quickly forgotten in the world of sports. But when people look back at our career, kids who have had us, coaches who have been influenced by us, people in our coaching tree, all that good stuff that I hope, you know, I hope, I, I pray that, that that happens for me, that I've benefited people, that I've been a net positive, you know. But what I would say is I want to be judged by my second-tier kids because you're stars. Like Kaylin Tate that I got right now, she is a stud. She'd be good for anybody you know but that kid like i talked about supporting like a cross country meet fourth fifth sixth seventh kid you know that's where i hope that i've shown my true benefit you know because again it's like i am trying to do what's best for them and dial in the training for them because that's where i show the strength of my program and the idea that it is completely and 100 percent athlete driven you know that they're successful because i've found the things that they need to work on or the things that really make them go that i can accentuate to make them the best that they can be where the stud superstar kids i mean goodness gracious you know i look back again at my early my very first year i owe those kids so many apologies because they were so talented and I think back now and I'm like man I wish I could have had that I wish I could have them now but that's the way that we have to go through our evolution as a coach we have to learn in order to get better and to be a benefit a net positive to all of our kids and as long as you're being athlete centered and you're really thinking about creating and deriving training from what they're showing you by having good testing by having longitudinal knowledge of kids who've come before, having a good program that's, like you said, you have to have a good program. You know, you have to have a program that works. But then within that framework, you have to then be able to adjust, and those adjustments have to not be disruptive. So, like, when I'm feeding the cats with Taylor Foster, like, she fit super well within my program. It didn't disrupt anything. And if I didn't have Tony... As a mentor, Taylor Foster would have never been able to achieve what she was 
able to achieve. If I didn't have Coach Burris as a mentor, I wouldn't have the state record in the four by eight and multiple all state four by fours because I wouldn't have known how to apply a program to those very different types of kids without it becoming very disruptive to what was good essentially about what I was already doing. Real quick. So with the idea of being athlete first, does that philosophy go into your entries for track meets, right? Have you ever sacrificed winning a meet because you, you know, like an athlete that would win the 400, but you know, needs some max speed work. So you put her in the 100 or something like that. Has that ever been something like a hurdle or something that you think about? Cause I know as a young coach, all right, you are the best at this. So you're going to run this every meet. My first year, the kids would run the same. And I, you know, look at, we talked about this before you look back and you're just like, I'm so sorry for everything I ever did to you. <laughs> um, but like I, my, that first year, I'm like, okay, what events are we going to score the most? And okay, those are the only events we're going to do. And that I stunted my kids' growth. And I know that as a coach and looking back now, and you know, I, I wish I had known that sooner, but I didn't. So, but as that, you know, when being athlete first, does that affect how you do entries? 100%. It is one of the biggest things. And that's why, like, when you look at my schedule, one of, it's a strategic choice too, as a coach, because I've got uh, one or two coaches in the St. Louis area who are really good. And they're really good at this too. But I want the opponents, when we're, we're laying out that chessboard, right, towards the end of the uh, end of the year meets the district sectional state meet I want them to second guess what I'm going to do because I want to have all of these kids have all of these races and then you got to go man which one is he going to put this kid in which jump or throw or is he not even going to do those things and throw them on a relay I like that because that puts me in a driver's seat to win a lot of district titles or to be top two, which we've, you know, 12 out of the last 13 years, we've been first or second. And I was third one other time, um, even before I even knew what the hell I was doing. Um, but, but part of that's this idea of having this variety of things. So they have no idea. The other reason why I do it is because I want coaches who might want my kid for college to see all the different events that they've run or jump or throw and go, man, this kid, boy, if I got my hands on this kid, I could make him a really good jumper or a really good thrower or, or a really good 400-meter kid or, or, wow, you know, once this kid focuses on the 100, they're going to be amazing because look at all this other stuff they can do. So I like that because that gives them a better resume to get recruited. I also like switching up the events because it then allows every athlete in my program to prove what their best event is. So that's another reason to do it which is really cool because it makes it competitive within the team and no one ever owns an event. Even though you and I both know that as the season goes along, that becomes pretty clear, you know, like Kaylin Tate, I made the decision. She could run a 400, you know, we were in a meet, um, this Ledoux invitational, which is like the Brusca invitational or whatever. And I put her and Nakira, my best two girls in the hundred meter dash. I put them in the 400 just because I wanted to see him run an open four. I wanted college coaches to see it. I wanted my opponents to see it. And I also wanted to provide an opportunity for like Kennedy who ran a hundred in that meet and Ellie Liebman who also ran a hundred in that meet. And it was beautiful weather and they both ran really fast. You know, one ran, uh, Ellie Liebman ran 1279. She was the 18 six foot long jumper. 
and Kennedy Moore, you know, ran 1304 FAT, which again, isn't going to blow anybody away, but it informed me on, okay, if I had to run Kennedy, I could, if I had to run Ellie, I absolutely could, but they also have the speed and potential, especially for Kennedy when we're trying to figure out the jumps. She's really fast. We need to put her in the jumps. As we apply this in the long jump, it's going to be great. I To answer your specific question, I will sacrifice invitationals all the time to do all of those things to provide me athletes in different spots, to provide the coaches to see what we're doing, to provide my inner competition within my program to continue to go throughout the season that nobody thinks they own an event. And for me to know what's the best uh, setup that I have at the end of the year to do that. And for me to do different combinations, like what if I wanted to run three relays, what is the potential of my relay or, Hey, I want to chase a kid. Like this kid keeps scratching out of an event and I want my kid to run against her to see what she can do. I want to see how the kid can handle maybe a loaded schedule or an unloaded schedule. How does that affect their performance? And so we rotate those all the time. Now, this is really cool. The last part of this is I'll do it to um, provide not only all those things I just told you, but also to give my athletes a chance to, um, you know, uh, oh gosh, I'm losing my train of thought on this, but it's, it's the most, it's like the most important thing, but to, to figure out, you know, not only what their, their best event is, but to kind of like get this understanding of what is the best schedule in the meet? What's the best combination of events that are close to each other? Can they handle events that are close to each other? And, oh, here's what I was looking for. Okay, I got it. I got it. I caught it. My, my some timers coming in. I don't have Alzheimer's yet. I got some timers. But the best thing is, is to put together a schedule that matches the training for the week. So, like, if it's a speed power week, okay, then I want them to run the shorter stuff. If it's an endurance week, I want them to run the longer stuff. If it's a recovery week, I want them to run their best event. So, you want that, that competition in the end of the week to match the theme of the week. So, that's what I was looking for. I'm sorry. I've been talking so long. I'm getting brain dead here. That makes all that, I mean, I've seen so many examples of that. I think the coolest example, you know, just because it's sometimes it's fun to put somebody in something different just to see how they perform and just to kind of surprise them. There was like, he was my teammate for my, for two years in high school. His name was Jacob Scholl. He uh, was the state champion in the 200 as a junior. And then he had committed to SEMO. Um, and they kind of wanted to see what he would do as like a mid distance kind of guy. And so they came to our, our small invitational and I was like, Hey Jake, what are you running today? He's like the 800. I was like, 800, you've never ran 800 in your life. He's like, yeah, I have no idea how that's going to go. But his, the coach, the SEMO coaches wanted to see him run an 800. So he ran it. He ran a two flat having never ran it before one by 50 meters and jogged the end because he turned over his shoulders thinking, where's everybody at? <laughs> Just completely embarrassed the guys that can, that only run the eight. And he, you know, he finished it easy. It's, uh, still the meet record. I had a kid that would have broken it this year. I'd like to, you know, but unfortunately we didn't have it, but it's crazy to think that you, you know, a kid that never does something, you know, you, you have a, like a long jumper that's never long jump, but pops out, you know, I don't know, a guy you, you think, Hey, never done this before. There's 20 feet. And you're th you know, 
it just it's cool just to you know see and, and try things and you know that that comes into like what we talked about with being a well-rounded team and you know getting those multi you know athletes and things like that it's so cool correct and and having that opportunity could be a scholarship could be a state championship individually that you never would have known about if you never put that kid in that event like I had two girls and I know we've talked about this but on the last one but I had two girls that looked very promising in the 300 meter hurdles and we had never tried it um the previous seasons and I was like all right for sure even though you're good at these sprints and these relays we're going to do this event same thing with Kaylin she was her dad is one of the best hurdlers in school history. I mean, probably if, if he wouldn't have clipped a hurdle, probably would have been state champion my freshman year when he was a senior. He was a stud. And so naturally I was like, oh, Kalen needs to hurdle. And so we did that. You know, we did that. We rotated that in early in the year. And another thing is she can jump out of the room. I've watched her play volleyball. And I'm like, what if this girl can jump 20 feet in the long jump and like blow up? our state record in the long jump. I deserve it. I des- she deserves a chance to see what she can do. And so that's some things I'm really excited about, but you wouldn't be able to do those things if you had this locked in, I've got to win every invitational and every kid's got to run the same races. You're doing your kids a disservice and they could be world-class like uh, Tiana Bar- Barletta, who's like world-class long jumpers on the four by one, I think to set the, the, the world record. And she's been an Olympic champ and all this kind of stuff. When she was in college, like she had a really great long jump, but never really sprinted all that much. Come to find out as she's trained with different coaches, she's a hell of a sprinter. And then because she could run the hundred so great, now that informs her speed and control of that speed on the runway which has allowed her to be internationally renowned as a jumper way later in her career than most females are in, in track and field because she's figured this stuff out and has been able to continue to improve even into her 30s. The, the prime example that I know of personally that I've seen with that, and you talk about scholarships, something you know, in Illinois, we, you know, I know some states score it, but the decathlon, or heptathlon, you know, that's a, a an event that you don't really get to see. And obviously you don't see in high school um, and, and around here, but this, uh, he was a, he was two years older than me in high school. His name is Sir Whitaker, probably the best athlete I've ever seen in person, never come around this area. You know, I, it's kind of, a lot of people would say that he was a 300 meter hurdle state champion, but he also threw 125, 130 in the disc, could run, you know, a low 11, sub 1100, all these great things, over six foot high jumper, 23 foot long jumper, all these things. So he went to Mizzou and did the decathlon. And, um, you know, but if, if, if he never would have tried, you know, if we wouldn't, it's like, Oh, I wonder if if you could throw the discus and then he threw like 120, 130, which, you know, isn't amazing at the state level, but how many kids that are throwing discus at the state level can run a sub 40, 300 meter hurdle, that kind of thing. And so was he, in, was he in all, he was an all American at Mizzou, right? Wasn't he? Yeah. He, he yeah. was a uh, tops. I think at one point he was, I want to say top 50, top 60 in the world. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He's a, <laughs> just a, a very well-rounded athlete. 
um, who happened to put me on my butt a couple of times during football practice, but <laughs> that's besides the point. So, but if he wouldn't have ever thrown discus, you would, you know, you, we wouldn't know that per se. Maybe he doesn't go on to do the decathlon. You right. Know, and that well-roundedness. And one of the greatest athletes of our time is Bo Jackson. And what people don't realize is that Bo Jackson actually was a decathlete in, in high school. And I think I'm not a hundred percent sure about this, but he was, I think the the state record holder in the decathlon for sure. If not the national high school record holder for a brief period of time, you know, and Lomba, yeah, and you know, he's one of the really great baseball player. Um, really, really, really good football player. If he wouldn't have gotten hurt, you know, and Heisman Trophy winner and all this kind of stuff. I mean, you know, golly. And that, again, if anything's a selling point to Tony talking about, we need to have these football guys run track and throw it. You know, right there, Bo Jackson, who's considered the best physical specimen, quote unquote, of all time, partly was as great as he was because he had so much various athletic experience that allowed him to be so great because he did do all these different things. Um. Real briefly to to finish up, um, right next to me, and I don't I don't know why I'm going to hold it up because nobody sees this, but there's this massive book in my hands called Sprinter's Compendium, which you authored, you know, put together. What 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 made you do that? Like, why did you why did that project happen? Like, what made you want to write a book or you know to do that? Real simple and quick because I know we have talked a lot and the, and the listeners have been been really nice to stay on with us this entire time. But um, it's real simple. I wanted to provide people a path to quick level up their coaching knowledge. And so, like, not all of us have a great coaching group of friends who are growth mindset that are willing to share. And so I wanted to create a space and a place where a coach could go and learn everything they ever wanted to know or didn't even think was important for the sprints to increase their knowledge, to sit on the shoulders of not me, but all of the other people who are participants in that book, to learn from them, to learn from their mistakes, to learn from their perspective. And so that way, when you're a coach, you will have less of those situations that you and I had growing into this where we go, gosh, darn it, I wish I could have that season back. You know, where now the, the errors that you make are much more nuanced and on the peripherals versus major catastrophic errors in training, sports psychology, recovery, whatever. So I wanted to provide that like Dr. Daniels did with his distance running formula, which is so beloved for good reasons that you don't have to know much about distance training. And like me, I got a chance to talk to him a little bit and I bought his book. And then through my, some of my other experiences, I was able to be a net positive for distance girls in my school that already were really, really great. And I wanted to do the same thing for sprint coaches and sprint athletes. And for me, because I spent you know, much of my own sprint career injured I want as many kids to get a beautiful experience out of track and field without an injury being the reason why they stop. It's the only thing I've ever reviewed on Amazon. And I, <laughs> because I don't, I, I hate taking the time and I hate, you know, I hate leaving reviews, but 
Um, absolutely. It, it was, you know, I saw it. I don't remember how I found it on Amazon, but I just remember reading the description of, like, of the coaches that it contributed. And I thought, oh, all right, I'll give it. And then it came in the mail and I pulled the disc picking it up. Cause it, it is, it is a lot of information. And that's the thing. I have, I've bought so many books in the last few months, especially during COVID to read through this thing. I could spend years going through it all. There is so much information here. And I mean that in the best way possible. There is something here for every sprint coach and sprint distance, anybody that coaches speed power events or sports, you know, football coaches would get a lot out of this. There's so much here with anybody that needs to work speed in some capacity. I, there are very few books I recommend. Um, this is definitely one of them. And it is, I just blown away by first. I, okay. My first initial thought was, Oh, this thing's a lot bigger than I thought it was going to be. My second initial thought was, Holy crap. We need one of these for every event in track. I will, I want a thrower's compendium and a distance compendium and a jumper's. Comp I think that, I think this, what you, the way you did it, instead of just like writing a book like about critical mass and say, this is how you do critical mass system. And this is why you should do it. You have, I, you have Tony, you have Tony in here as one of the, you know, one of the contributors. Right. You have you know, Fitz Anderson, all the, all this huge array of track coaches and, and sprint gurus. And what's crazy is they're all different and they all work. And you can find, and, you know, so you can find a system, a training philosophy, whatever that you can buy into as a coach. And because there's so many in here and that's what's, that's what's awesome. And that's like your debate that you, you know, that you do with Tony, there's a kind of a debate between however many coaches are in this book because you know, there's umpteen talking about the same subject and they're all different. Some, you know, some coaches are doing the same thing, but there's so many different opinions that I think that's why it's so valuable. So many things that you buy as a book, a webinar, it's this coach telling you why their system works. And then not that those aren't good because most coaches that are doing that have systems that do work, but this thing was just so amazing because there's so many opinions that you can take something from and then and, and you cover every asset of you know you have warm-ups you have recovery you know, you cover all these different assets or aspects of sprinting which is another reason why it's just such a great resource and i can't recommend it enough so well andrew i appreciate that and that's like the greatest compliment that you can get as an author and as a coach and obviously there are things that doing the book again, um, you know, cleaning up some of the grammar and, and new coaches who I've met like yourself and other people. It's like, man, I'd really like to get some more perspectives in there and, and some different stuff. And it is, it's a monster. And so I always tell people it's so big, it can be intimidating. And so take one thing you want to get better at and go and improve it, you know, go improve it, go listen to the, read the coaches, watch the videos I've got in there with the QR codes, Go look at my mistakes and the things that I decided to do and what science says and become an expert at that particular thing. You know, one of the coaches, Coach Weaver out in California, he's a coach at Buchanan High School in um, Fresno, and he won the state championship. And one of the reasons why he won it, he's got a great overall program, okay, first of all. But he had a young lady who ended up winning the state title in the 200-meter dash and dropped over – Oh gosh, like a second and a half from her junior year to her senior year. And, and basically he's already a good coach, but the one thing he really wanted to dive into was the weight room. And so he applied the weight room chapter and all the progressions and he challenged her and said, you know, Hey, we've never really done this. Are you willing to do everything that we haven't done to fill in the gaps within your performance? And she said, yes. And ended up running a 2379 FAT 200 and I mean, if you see pictures of this girl, she is 
built, you know, super strong. And you'd be, you'd be surprised at how she looks too. Cause it's, it's just, it's striking, you know? And um, I was really excited because it's like, man, that guy's, he's way better than me. <laughs> he's got a great program and he even found something valuable about it. Otto Boland was the first guy to buy my book. The first guy, you know, and he coaches Brianna, who's one of the fastest, you know, sub uh, 18 year old sub twenties ever in the history of the world, you know, and he's responsible for her progression. And again, weight room really helped her out. So here's a coach who's one of the best sprinters of all time and found value in it. That's awesome. You know, and it, and it makes me so proud that I had the opportunity to provide people those things that allowed them to help, help kids become the best that they can be, but also help individual athletes be better. Lion Martinez, a Swedish masters sprinter, you know, won the world championship, made massive improvements. Now I have a friend for life in Sweden that if I ever want to go there, I got somebody to hang with, you know, and it would never have happened without this. So I'm so proud of it. It's, it's one of the biggest accomplishments. I know it sounds hyperbolic, but one of the biggest accomplishments of my life. And if I can help other coaches and athletes get to achieve their dreams and do it without catastrophic injuries or big problems, then I feel like I'm a net positive beyond my time here, which is pretty cool. You know, I, Mike Cunningham, the first guest I interviewed, one of his big things was as coaches, it's our duty to provide value. Are what we doing providing values for others? And again, this podcast has very selfish motives and it's just a great opportunity for me to talk to other coaches like yourself and learn. And I can say to you as the author and to all the listeners that this provide incredible value for me, this book did, and it will for you as well. You'll get okay. something out of it. You, there's, there's, too much, there's too much value and information in this book not to. Thanks, so, man. It's a great, you know, it's a great legacy that you've, that you've put on paper. Uh, so thank you. Um, well, that's all the questions I have right now. I know I could make up hours worth more, but I'll let you, you know, you have a life, so I'll let you go. <laughs> um, uh, you're, you're on Twitter, uh, at Sprinters Compendium, right? Yep. Yep. Uh, so follow Ryan. He puts out good content. And so he's a great follow there and so, buy the book. <laughs> so, all right. Thanks for listening. And thanks Ryan for your time again. And I appreciate it. I appreciate this conversation. Thank you. Cheers, Andrew. I appreciate it too, man. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode or got something out of it, please leave a rating and a review. Lastly, follow me on Twitter at Coach McGacky. That's M-C-G-H-G-H-Y. And stay tuned for the next episode. Thanks.